0: like it or not, they discover that Bitcoin has merit. You know, winter comes on the backside of that speculative bubble, and now there's more people who believe in Bitcoin. There's still half as much Bitcoin being made, but now there's even more people who believe in Bitcoin the way that we believe in Bitcoin and are trying to accumulate during that winter time, that that winter that hardens that tree ring. That's how Bitcoin
1: grows. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, it's another weekly installment of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. We're stoked to be here and we hope you are too in today's episode josh and myself dan are joined by jesse myers until recently jesse won under the pseudonymous title creasus and if you've studied bitcoin for long you know who that is jesse has a background as a management consultant with a focus on disruptive tech trends he has his mba from stanford a master's in accounting from ut austin and he studied neuroscience at usc in our view jesse's writings and contributions are next level profound and his ideas reflect a thoughtful, big-picture perspective that's clearly illuminated by his robust, interdisciplinary background. Our first conversation with Croesus a little over a year ago might just be our best-received episode since the inception of this show, and in our view, this conversation picks up right where that chat left off. In this hour, we cover topics such as how Bitcoin hardens and strengthens during bear markets, the numbers behind why we're so freaking early in Bitcoin, still in the first 1% of adoption, why Bitcoin may click especially hard for accountants, Jesse's journey away from altcoins, an update on Jesse's yuppie friends, and the enormous size of sailors' cajones. If you're smelling what we're cooking here at BCB Pod, the biggest way you can help us is to subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app of choice and leave us a review on Apple. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is powered by CoinKite, All CoinKite products are at CoinKite.com, and you can use promo code BCB for 5% off select purchases, including the Cold Card. The new Cold Card Mark IV is built with the same care, attention, and durability of a well-crafted cast-iron skillet. And similar to cast-iron, there's really no alternative. The two of us have been utilizing our Cold Card Mark IVs for a couple months now, and we can tell you with confidence, this device is impressive. It's got unlimited memory, meaning no transaction size limits expanded multi-sig capabilities, near-field communication, a new tougher case with upgraded plastic and cleaner edges, and faster processing. The Mark IV truly is the industry leader in Bitcoin signing devices and cold storage. Without any more pleasantries, enjoy this discussion with Jesse Myers, aka Kresis. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Krasis, your face is going to go far and wide. (laughs) You've come out of the closet. In a manner of speaking. Jesse Myers... Yeah, in a matter of speaking. How brave of you. So brave. Um, So bold. (laughs) Welcome back on, man. You are on by popular demand. Our initial conversation with you, by our standards, went parabolic. People still comment on it. I feel like every month we're getting something about people talking about the conversation we had with you. So high pressure. You're going to need to back it up here today. Yeah, two for two. Uh, How are you? Welcome on, man.
0: I'm I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, like our our last conversation, I guess it was a little over a year ago now. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But that was that that found like a cool groove, and I think was pretty helpful for some people of like making making the the like intro to the Bitcoin investment thesis like accessible. Um, and and I think that's thanks to you guys. You made it such a a fun, easygoing experience. So I'm excited to do it again.
2: No, uh, you made it easy on us, man. Honestly, like we were just, we were just, we just had a good time and it all flowed really well. So, you know, no pressure so, on this one at all. Speaking at of all. a
0: good time, I'm going to make sure to start it off with, with this. So let's see if I can get a little.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Alaskan Brewing. Dude, that sound effect, man. <laughs> Someone that hasn't listened to that first discussion should probably go back and listen to it. It's timeless. Um, it I don't is. think we talked about much of anything related to markets of the, of that specific week or month. I think it was very big picture. We covered a good amount of your work. We'll probably do some of a repeat on that. Let's go back though, to where we weren't, we weren't privyed or allowed to go before. <laughs> Tell us who you actually are and fill in some of the gaps for us.
0: Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I'm, I'm. My name is Jesse Myers. I, um, I run a, a little Bitcoin fund. It started out as an altcoin fund in 2017. Um, when I, when that was my thesis, uh, and got rocked in 2018, uh, and was forced to figure out what I was missing, why was I wrong about believing that altcoins would chip away at the incumbent positions of of Bitcoin and then also Ethereum. Um, and, you know, that sent me down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin. Uh, and I came out the other end a full blown Bitcoin maximalist. Um, and have been contributing a- as Croesus ever since. Uh, so, yeah, so a little bit more of my background. I, I um, was a management consultant at, at Bain & Company for four years. Uh, and got an MBA at Stanford, um, and before that, I got a Master's of Accounting at, at UT Austin. Before that, I I did a, studied neuroscience at at USC. Um, so it's been a meandering uh, road that has led me to Bitcoin, and now Bitcoin's my my everything, my my whole focus, my only my only intellectual interest
2: at this point. Wow, as it does, you know. Um. Man, you actually—you got an accounting degree. That's yeah. something. Uh, yeah. You I got some stuff to send over to you for you to figure out for me, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> I absolutely hate accounting, man. I don't know how you plugged through that thing.
0: Yeah, I while well, I struggle with doing my my own business accounting and and taxes huh. every year is, is telling tell me key, about that. But, um. Yeah. Uh. But yeah, the, I it's interesting that I so I got a, a degree in accounting from the same place that Pierre Rochard got his degree in accounting. Um, which is a fantastic accounting school at, at UT Austin. Um, and I think Breedlove also has an accounting degree. I think there's I a common thread of, you know, accounting is the
2: the language of business. I, I think accounting is the language of masochists is what I believe. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, is, so. that is simultaneously <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> true. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, you, when you get familiar with how uh, financial statements work and like how cash flows Work and, and impact your your income statement, but also you know update your balance sheet, and you get familiar with those mechanics. It makes business and money a more mechanical thing, which I think primes you to see Bitcoin as a superior type of 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 accounting of mechanics. You know, it's triple entry accounting, really. Um, and and it's just vastly superior to the way that that you learn about what you have to do as an accountant in accounting school. Um, most of accounting school is focused on churning out uh, young audit associates for the big four and Bitcoin can do everything that an audit does uh, automatically every ten minutes without without needing anyone to go uh you know check inventory levels or or mm. reconcile right. cash statements without trust. Uh, yeah. Don't have to do that. It automatically does it through your node and through the you know global uh, decentralized consensus. So I think that I think accounting is funnily enough one of the key pieces in my background to recognizing that oh this Bitcoin thing makes a ton of sense. And when you have anything that's you know ten times faster, better, cheaper, uh, one of the things I learned in business school is venture capitalists are always looking. Um, for shrinking markets, uh, meaning that you want to be investing in a, in a tech- technological disruptor that does something 10 times faster, better, cheaper, because that's what wins. And you want to shrink a market because it's cheaper for a company to do so they can charge less and still make profits. Um, and Bitcoin, without being a company, is doing that because, you know, it, just in the audit example, it completely implodes that whole market because you've, you've created the same functionality every 10 minutes with zero cost.
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, I make an insanely basic realization here, but having you explore that whole vantage point of an accountant, pretty much any time I interact with the Bitcoin protocol and move Bitcoin, which I've now been doing for you know over five years, but every single time, the thought comes into my head, holy fuck, there is nobody in control of this. There's nothing proprietary. It is alive on its own without any human being as a backstop or as where the buck stops. And I can see how in the mind of an accountant, that's even more crazy because there's so much, obviously I know there's a lot of automation, but there's so much human involvement in getting Mm -hmm. these ledgers accurate. Yeah. And now here comes Bitcoin, and it's doing it all on its own, yeah, without any captain at the at the helm of the ship it's wild
0: and i and I guess in a in a way it's it's sort of a seed that's planted in your mind when you're an accounting student and you're you know doing accounting homework, and you're like, "Why can't this just reconcile itself uh, <laughs> but yep. you know that it, of course that's not how. Accounting works traditionally. Well, I'll tell you how it
2: works. You just do a journal entry and you make it balance
1: and it's all good. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's all that's yeah, all just, you gotta do. Just super just add some goodwill and balance it yeah. all out, right? No problem. <laughs> Jesse, why did you decide to come out uh, with your actual name? What what precipitated that change of heart?
2: We got to yeah, be careful with right. our verbiage here, Dan. People are going to think he's coming out, you know, in a different way if <laughs> we keep talking about it like
1: this. That's the goal. My goal is to obfuscate. That's going to be that's episode. going to be the
2: title of this. Crisis coming out of the closet. That's the name I, of this. When episode. I when I
1: wrote that uh, that
0: article that I posted on LinkedIn and I, I, I think I titled it uh, why Why I'm coming out as a Bitcoin maximalist. And I was like, I think I should take care to not use any other verbiage, <laughs> you know, that that comes from that uh, that. Yeah. Uh, a plight of other, of other folks who are in a, you know, similar sort of position, but a, a very different closet. Um, you know, cause that's not a, that's not, it's not cool to steal their, uh, steal their, their verbiage, but steal
2: their bravery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So why though? Uh, I think it is a, a mixture of things. Um, and you know, it, as an Anon at any moment, you're kind of constantly weighing the like pros and cons of, you know, like it it would be really cool to be able to like show my face and like talk to people um, freely uh, at at events or whatever. But then you're also kind of afraid of persecution, I think most most of all. Um, I think you're afraid, I was afraid of my like professional risk, of, of reputational risk Um, in my network and that diminished over time because (laughs) frankly, I got further and further away from my professional network and just more and more like fully immersed in Bitcoin. And so that, that reputational risk seemed to matter less, you know, like what, what, if I burn some bridges with people I haven't talked to in years because I've been fully immersed in Bitcoin, who cares? Um, and so that, that specter dropped. Uh, but also the, the, the risk of, of, um, persecution seems a little l- lower than it did a few years ago. Um, I, I think that there's a lot more public Bitcoiners and Bitcoin is more socially acceptable, more, you know, there's just a, a, a there's, we're close to critical mass, um, in terms of, Social um, acceptability of being a, a die-hard Bitcoiner in the U.S. at least, um, and so that feels different than it did. But then also, it's like I haven't had that much motivation to to write and put out stuff um, as Croesus because it's fundamentally like in, in a container. It's it's isolated from my real uh, real mm. world and my personal identity. Um, And, you know, it feels good to help people on their journey as an Anon, but it's more motivating to be able to attach my name to it and, um, you know, have people excited to talk about stuff or see what opportunities are are out there to help build something in Bitcoin. Um, That's always possible as an Anon, but uh, way less readily available, I gotta say. There's more skin in the game,
1: so to speak, too.
0: Yeah, there's definitely more skin in the game, um, and part of it is like like with the shift of podcasts towards towards um, video. Uh, you know, there have been podcasts that that I've you know have talked to the the podcast hosts about like how do we make this work and it's and it never is easy to do as an anon when they have a, a video format podcast. Um, and so like, that's just a small example of, of how it helps to be out, um, out there with your face.
2: We've talked about how we're going to approach Gigi the next time we have him on. And, uh, he's clearly going to have to be in his green suit. And that's the only way this is going to work.
1: That Gigi episode, by the way, (laughs) Creases was like the most shocking moment for us. We just assume, uh, I don't know if you feel this way too, that Nobody gives a shit about what we're doing here. Like it just feels like it's just the two of us, and we just have these rewarding conversations for us. So when we find out that someone that we admire listens and like we're talking to Gigi before we click record, this motherfuckers listened to like every single episode. He's like quoting back all this specific shit. amazing. um it's crazy. It, yeah. but yeah, he's got it. I think it really was cool. life goals. um be a great parent, consummate professional, get to Gigi's compound would be maybe number three. that's that's top of the list as far as I'm yeah. concerned uh, <laughs> Gigi, yeah, Gigi, we need to get to your compound
0: GG crushes uh, podcast
2: before we click record here you mentioned you spoke to somebody uh, you wouldn't tell us who kind of leaving it for the podcast itself I, I'm really it's been eating at me since we started this yeah let's let's get this out there I want to know who'd you talk to yesterday what was the conversation about Fill us in on this
0: yeah it was it was a surreal uh experience for me because well it was it was at like um um, a, a small event for Bitcoiners in LA that was hosted by Swan. Um, thanks to the Swan guys and the awesome stuff they're doing there. Um, and, uh, and Michael Saylor was there and, uh, Andy Edstrom introduced me and I, I don't know, I was assuming that he wouldn't know who I was. Um, and, and then when Andy introduced uh, introduced me, there was like a half second of like Croesus, And then he was like, Oh, you're the man. And I was like, what? <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> you're, no, you're the man. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that was, you know, kind of a mind blowing experience of you know, like, I knew he followed me and, and has followed me since, since like right after he started talking
2: about Bitcoin. Um, That's but awesome, I didn't man. think that I was like, you know, on his radar. Dude, you're going to be on the boat next year, man. The yacht. You're going to be on the sailor yacht <laughs> yeah. at the Bitcoin conference. If he still has one next year, he might not have a yacht.
0: I, I, thought, that, uh, I thought that was scheduled for last year. I, 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 ca- I guess that uh, got postponed, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Does he still have a yacht? I mean, <laughs> oh, I <think laughs> does, Bitcoin's not
2: been doing so well. He might not yeah, have we, a yacht We're anymore. not
0: anywhere near that one. We're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. So that so that was a pretty awesome experience. And like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, one of, the, one of the moments I've had since going public of, of like, oh, wow, like, th- this, this has been more rewarding because um, I can talk to people about and, and find out that, that actually my work has, has touched, or touched people that, that I didn't know about, um, including, I guess, Michael Saylor, which is crazy to me. That is wild, man.
1: Did you have that any more? Did, was it a quick interaction or did you have any conversation <laughs> with him?
0: He, he then right after that, he said, um, he said, I, I thought you were I thought you were older and wiser. Uh, well, you are wise. Uh, <laughs> and then we talked a bit about um, about uh, I guess we, it was a conversation about property taxes that I interjected into. And so we, we talked a fair bit about that and and how Bitcoin you know, sidesteps all the the, the overhead and friction of owning property. Um, Yeah. And then and then he had to bow out and uh, um, and and very earnestly, like, you know, had an aside to me of of, you know, shaking my hand and saying, keep up the good work, like in a very in a very earnest, like you're you're doing something for this cause kind of way. Um, Which is pretty cool. You know, That, that guy is really motivated by helping humanity realize the potential of Bitcoin to benefit everyone. That's amazing,
1: man, that's cool. We're desensitized to what he's been up to. When you really start to process it, it's crazy. The amount of risk I think is the right word. Um, I know that maybe that word and Bitcoin don't go hand in hand, but to do what he's done with his company and to be this far ahead of the charge. I think that's one of the things that's maybe surprised you and us as well, Um, through this cycle, if we call it that, is I think we were expecting the cavalry to come uh, at his coattails a lot quicker. He's way ahead, hopefully not too early. (laughs) I mean, some people get the the trade or the idea right and the timing wrong. Hopefully that's not the case for him. But man, the pair of balls it takes to do this and then to keep doing it is wild. And it's either going to be too early or the trade of the fucking millennium. Yeah. Uh, one of the two. Yeah. Uh, I,
0: I think we agree on which one it's going to be. Um, I, I, I always think about with Michael Saylor, I, I, I found out early on when he showed up into Bitcoin that, you know, in, in the dot com crash, he, he lived through a, a 97% drawdown of his personal wealth.
2: And I think he's one of the only CEOs of all time that has survived that kind of drawdown yeah. and kept his job, yeah, which is insane. Right.
0: And I mean, <laughs> very different sort of experience, but getting wrecked in altcoins, uh, you know, was a similar kind of humbling uh, for me. And, it, you know, I, I think that that is, I think that my experience with altcoins is a major reason why I have emerged with like a, a more sturdy conviction in Bitcoin, or potentially it's just that I'm desensitized to drawdowns because I've had such a horrendous one. Um, and Michael Saylor might be in a similar sort of position. You know, that that guy is hardened because of what he has, the volatility that, and yeah. and the, I don't know, the, the daggers that must have come out trying to get him, you know, in the boardroom in 2001 uh, and he survived that, and I think he's I think he's made of something, something different than your typical CEO because of yeah. everything that has hardened him.
2: So let's talk about this bear market a little bit. So since last we talked, we were kind of in the middle of that choppiness in 2021, where Bitcoin shit the bed to 30 grand, then turned itself around and went to almost 70. And I think Dan and I were on the same page. We were like, this is very unusual. This thing doesn't generally do a double peak. Like this thing's going. Yeah. And we were both pretty surprised when it
1: didn't. Yep. Same
0: here.
2: Uh, I mean, Bitcoin will always do the thing you don't expect. Right. And so you should expect the unexpected. But anyway, the point I'm getting at is, is anything changed in your mind about your thesis about Bitcoin going through this bear market? Is this just, you know, as usual, Bitcoin bear market, we're going to deal with this for another couple of years, probably. How are you looking at this? What's the lens you're viewing this through?
0: Yeah, I, I think overall, nothing, nothing is different. Um, this I'm surprised to be in the exact same sort of emotional landscape as early 2019, because, you know, I, I would have thought that the market would learn to not be so. Doom and gloom here after a, after a drawdown with Bitcoin, because you've seen what happens every time a, a halving comes around guess what? It's twice as, you know, there's half as much new supply going out into the market. Here comes the accumulation of of uh, supply shortage and, and uh, available for sale supply is going to be bid up uh, and the price goes up and then you go through this whole speculative bubble flywheel. Um, that's what happens every four years. And yet here we are with people, you know, thinking that That Bitcoin's going to zero, that the the people foolish enough to put out their opinions um, in major newspapers saying that this is the death of Bitcoin after we've already had 13 years of people declaring, I think, 400 plus major news publication deaths of Bitcoin. And every single one of them has been proven horribly wrong. And yet here we are in the same emotional place, the same... Um, lack of optimism, lack of perspective, uh, that, that was prevalent in early 2019. And I felt deeply then, uh, deeply enough that I got caught on the sidelines, you know, when it started to, to rip out of the bottom. And so I'm not going to make that mistake this time. I don't know if we go lower, but this is what it felt like at the bottom last time. And I know that the next halving is coming in 18 months. And I know mm-hmm. that the, the supply-demand mechanics that are gonna play out when that next halving comes will yeah. cause a price run. Do we, do we not get above 70,000, you know, the previous all-time high? I don't, I, I, think we, I think we do. Of course, yeah. I thought last time that we would get to like 150. I yeah. thought we would have a blow-off top to 150, maybe even 200, and then we would crash down to 60 or 50 or 40 um and of course we didn't get that uh and so if i'm surprised about anything it is i am surprised about how how much frankly how much this has uh, lagged behind what what like the stock to flow model would have predicted and yeah the stock to flow model is is wrong um but i think it's directionally correct right like i think that what in, what originally informed the stock to flow model is that if you look at how assets that have reduced issuance and you know track with the total value of that asset class there's such a clean line that's well documented with precious metals and diamonds real estate even um, and 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 so Bitcoin is climbing that graph. Um, and you know, the original stock to flow model was predicted a price equilibrium for right now of fifty five thousand. And then he u- he upped it to a hundred thousand, and then he even entertained two hundred and eighty thousand with a, a different version. Um but maybe the maybe the real answer for right now is that it forty five or fifty was the, the correct equilibrium. We got above it, now we're below it. And we're gonna find equilibrium over the next eighteen months before the next happen yeah um, I am surprised that that uh that we're as low as we are but you know it's been the worst it's been the worst year in the in for equities and bonds in I think like a century
2: uh yeah I think one of the i mean not to say that i'm I'm a huge advocate for that and it's obviously easy to be like oh I never believed stock to flow I mean it was easy everyone was Everyone was agreeing with that a year and a half ago. It was easy to watch to uh, agree with what you wanted to have happen,
0: and you kind of were rooting for it too. Yeah,
2: exactly. We all were, but I think the the major you know wind change was the macroeconomic situation with the yeah. Fed. You know, trying to step in, trying to be responsible for once in the last twenty years. Yeah, that changed the game, so and late. there's no way the stock to flow model could predict that kind of situation. Right. So, um, what? So, getting to that, what is your opinion about this whole? macroeconomic backdrop we have going on now do you think and we talked about this at nauseam with Foss and Carlos Ari just on our last episode but what's your take on this where's the uh, terminal rate going to be and where is this thing going to have to be turned around before they have to end up going broke basically because they can't pay for these taxes the tax rolls are not going to pay for the amount of interest they're going to have to pay on these
0: Yeah, so I I write like a monthly newsletter to my investors and for the last year, uh, well, a year ago, I was saying like the Fed can't, they can't raise rates much because because you have $30 trillion in national debt um, and you're already running a deficit after after record tax receipts because of all the capital gains from the COVID like market boom. and yet we were still running a deficit. And, you know, if you raise rates, it doesn't show up immediately. But whatever, what the interest expense that we pay on our national debt is tied to the current federal funds rate. It shows up slowly and there's a different mix of, like, durations. But mm-hmm. that is, like, if, if we were to hold the federal funds rate at 4% for, like, 10 years, um, that's what we would be paying. We'd be paying a 4%. Rate on our 30, thirty-one trillion now of national debt, also with still a hundred and sixty trillion of unfunded liabilities coming out down the pike. Um, so, a year ago, I thought that like they, they can't they, like the math doesn't make sense. They can't they can't do this without causing uh, a, a credit collapse, like a um, right a washout of bad debts that would precipitate a potentially a depression. And we and, and here we are uh, doing that. Um, and I think it's because the Fed genuinely believes that they can do what Volcker did in, in following the 70s. You know, we had persistent inflation uh, in the 70s and then Volcker's gambit, um, his shock to the markets was, was i 'm going to get a hold of inflation by setting interest rates at fifteen percent, and it worked, but back then you had twenty five percent debt to GDP, meaning that a massive increase in your in your uh, interest rates would increase the interest expense on debt but that but that debt pile was small enough that you could cover that with your budget, and we weren't running big deficits to start. So that's a very different environment from 125% debt to G- debt to D- GDP. Uh, I think I think it's since uh, since sometime in the 1800s. I forget the exact date. Uh, 50 out of 51 times, um, debt to GDP has gotten above 100%. Yeah, you have you have seen some kind of default, and it's usually called a yeah. different name, but. It amounts to the government bailing on the agreement of paying back, you know, without diluting or some kind of, you know, screwing with the numbers. Uh, And and the the one exception is Japan, and they're circling the drain right now. Yes, they certainly are. Um, So you know we're we're in that zone, and yet we're hiking rates aggressively. It can't last. the thing is 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 I'm I've come to accept that the what's logical is disconnected from what the Fed will do. Um, because they genuinely seem to believe that the, the only path forward is to do what Volcker did. And they and I think Powell I think I think Powell has at, at least over the last 6 months had in his mind that he could be uh, a hero like Volcker. Um, if he can just have the resolve to to pull off this gambit that he should not be doing because it's such a different circumstance now. So how long will it take for them to realize that we're, we're you know, running the risk of full on depression if we keep this up? I don't know. And, and, uh, and I, yeah, it, it's, I, don't, I don't know to an extent that it's silly to guess. Because it's not based it's not rooted in logic, it's rooted in the
2: beliefs of a few shaman at the Fed, yeah, or when they watch you know the the credit markets completely seize up would be my guess. But again, like guessing when that's going to happen it's it's a fool's errand, like yeah, there's no way. what to we know. saw
0: with the pound is is a canary in the coal mine of you know that's how this stuff will manifest. Yes. Uh, all, all the pension, ninety percent of the pensions in the UK almost went insolvent that day um, if if the uh, authorities hadn't stepped in to prevent it. Um, and that's just because of the the um, like leverage in in the bond world um, and how pensions you know uh, layer up their leverage with bonds because it's safe. Um, you know, it's, it's like it's just like in the Big Short, where all the models say it's it's fine, uh, so long as you're within these parameters. But then, lo and behold, um, those parameters assume a continuation of the status quo that doesn't happen when you're in a, you know, the the death of the fiat system.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting for me sizing up recent Fed activity. In a sense, I tip my cap to them because I think they have sized up the magnitude of losing trust in the dollar. Mm-hmm. Like they've said, okay, here's the future eventualities, which one's the worst? And they've demonstrated a tolerance for huge pain in markets to try to re-solidify the strength of the dollar after COVID clownsmanship for a couple of years. But I think I think, I mean, being a Bitcoiner is like playing a giant game of chicken with this debt problem. Like at this point and, and we're all ears for solutions, but I think you know I think that stat you gave I think that's maybe a Hirschman Capital stat that yep. I've seen Lynn Alden include. It's like there is no way out of needing to eventually monetize massive amounts of debt. And I the, I think we're just going to it's always going to be an emergency. You know what I mean? From this yeah. point forward it's going to be Ho hum, and then emergency happens and they bail it out, the way we just saw with the BOE. The chart that Larry Lepard has tweeted with the two lines of GDP with debt over the top of it, the two lines oh, yeah. diverging, yeah. and the bottom line needing to pay interest on the Kinda top line.
0: Them, yeah.
1: And we, we've quoted these stats that I think James Lavish is the one that gave them to me, but even when you zoom in like short term, the magnitude of the way interest expense has gone up in short order is yeah. crazy. Like interest rate expense in the US bottomed at around like 470 billion. Yeah. And we're already we're already encroaching on 800 billion yeah. because of these rate hikes. And then when you think about how much debt needs to roll over next year, what's earmarked that needs to go out the door in perpetuity for the next 30 years? Like, Then you look at all the demand, all the supply of treasuries that's out there. It's like in the mind of the average Bitcoiner, how is it not going to end up with needing to monetize an abhorrent amount of debt and then yeah. what's going to absorb value in the wake of that?
0: There aren't um, as many international buyers of U.S. treasuries as there used to be. So, so who's buying U.S. treasuries? Nobody wants to own them. Um, so the Fed is going to put them on their balance sheet. And so, yeah, they, they can obfuscate what those mechanics are, but that amounts to printing money. That amounts to eroding the um, the The viability of holding treasuries because you don 't want to hold treasuries if they 're printing more money than the nominal yield of the treasuries guarantees you uh, and so when you when the Fed is putting that on their balance sheet, that amounts to exactly what you don 't want and it only accelerates from there because the the problem gets bigger and bigger uh, <laughs> I, I remember in, in in accounting school we had um, a speaker come and alert us to the dangers of the national debt. Uh, it was kind of his mission. He was like a re- retired guy and um I think back then it would have been twenty eleven um, the national debt was like twelve or fifteen trillion something like that, and he was you know sounding the alarm about how unsustainable this is. And fast forward, they've kicked the can for, for a yep. whole other leg up on the graph of you know, Fed, the Fed's balance sheet, um, which last time they managed to draw down, they managed to roll off 14% of the assets on their balance sheet before things started to break and they had to turn QE back on. Um, for the next leg up. And right now we've rolled off 1% of the Fed's balance sheet. 1% and they'll probably right? get it down a little wow. bit more, but th- this, <laughs> this game only goes, there's only one outcome. Right. But the math is just there. The math is what it is. And they can talk about <laughs> managing market expectations all they want, but you can't escape the eroding uh, position of US treasuries as the reserve currency of the world. And there's two hundred and thirty billion dollars, a trillion dollars out there in global debt um, that are all in kind of a similar position of, you know, a a stated yield that is going to under underperform or not deliver a positive real yield uh, when you when you consider how much money printing is going to be going on from from all these countries. Every country is on fiat. Um, so you've got 230 trillion. I think it's, I think it's like that. Maybe it's 250 trillion in an asset class. It's going to underperform this decade. And, and yet we know there's another asset class that has a guaranteed mechanism for value appreciation every four years. Even if it, even if it feels unproven, it's been proving itself and it will continue to do so. And there's at some point that bond market starts to realize that their value is better stored in this other thing.
1: Or even 1% of their value is better stored. I I think one of the things from this cycle that's really stuck out to me is, is it's, it's impressed upon me that we're earlier than I thought actually.
0: It's one of the things I try to talk about with, with
1: everyone. And it's, yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to let you tee off here. But like when we were up in the 60,000s, let's say, yeah, I I would have expected that that like peg would have stayed in the rock more where it was. And now you and I'm regurgitating some of what you said earlier in the episode. But at least in my life, it's starting to feel like being a Bitcoiner is this journey of being stupid, a genius, and then back to stupid, like in the perception (laughs) of people around you. And 90% of the time, stupid. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say the uh, the uh, the pendulum swings the stupid a lot more, it feels yeah, like. Yeah, but, you spend yeah.
0: a lot of time in stupid.
1: <laughs> Guys, most people out there think this is, they're back to thinking this is a total joke. Yeah. And so, yeah, if this thing goes down to $1,000 and tucks in there for six years, I'm probably reevaluating the adoption curve. And your retirement timeframe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't go as high as we were expecting. Uh, we probably came lower, but in a, in a similar liquidity shock, we're, you know, orders of magnitude higher. One of yeah. my favorite things about what you do and how you enumerate it is why we're so early and I think we're a lot earlier than a lot of people perceive. Walk us through some of those numbers and your perspective on how early we are.
0: Yeah. Uh Okay, so to 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 start, I keep hearing this like there's 160 million people who have adopted Bitcoin number. And and it 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 it's starting to piss me off, I guess. Like Because when I look at the numbers, that's not the case. Um, I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe that means that there's 160 million accounts who have ever owned $10 on Coinbase and forgotten about it. Probably. Or ever logged in to get some promotion. And- Jesse,
1: half of our fire department owns Bitcoin. And there's only probably five people that I would actually consider Legitimate owners of Bitcoin in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's just uh, our our place of work is a microcosm of of the misrepresentation you're explaining.
0: That's a great that's a great example right there, and and fr- frankly, that's helpful to hear because, like, I don't know where 160 comes from, but it can, it can come from that, and so maybe that's happening everywhere. I guess that's the case, um, but you know, at any time, anyone can use their node which nobody's going to going to run the this like you know um code execution to do because I don't know how to do it but I go to bitinfocharts.com and look at the table of how many accounts have how much bitcoin in them and um the threshold that I like to think of as like a meaningful amount of bitcoin is 0.1 bitcoin mm-hmm. which right now is $2,000. So if you if you have adopted Bitcoin, you have at least $2,000 sitting in Bitcoin because you understand that Bitcoin is a savings account, a savings technology. And so you have stored some meaningful amount of your savings in it. If you haven't gotten to that level of interface with Bitcoin, I don't think that you should be considered an adopter. And so that, that $160 is is bullshit because when you look at the actual numbers there are 4 million accounts with at least 0.1 bitcoin in them on on the ledger and so yes there's some amount more who have their money stored on an exchange their bitcoin stored on an exchange and maybe that's 2x maybe that's 10x that number so Maybe it's forty million people think they have Bitcoin, but it's sitting on an exchange. Right. I was going to say that's a
2: loose, that's a yeah. loosely loosely termed Bitcoiner right there. If you're keeping it on an exchange, right. you should be cold storing this stuff.
0: Exactly. And and so to, to to really understand what this asset is, you should have it on you should have it on your own address. Um. And there's only four million people doing that, and a lot of those are are you know, like I have multiple accounts with. Zero point one Bitcoin in them, so yep. it's at at most four million people have taken the proper um, steps to engage with this asset the way it should be engaged with as a savings account a savings technology that you control and and all and all of the magic that comes with that um, and so where what does four million mean in terms of the global adoption curve well uh four million of 8 billion people would be one two thousandth. So if you wanted to use that number, you know, the whole world, one two thousandth of the world has adopted Bitcoin. Uh, that puts us really early. If you want to use um, a, a, a lower number of of how many people have a meaningful amount of wealth to store, I forget the exact number. I've, I think I probably said it, I'm not sure last time, um, but it's probably like a billion a billion people have ten thousand dollars or more of of savings so that would be one eighth so you know eight times further into that um pool of people all of that means that we are still in the first one percent right yeah um we're we're still we're, we're realistically one two thousandth
1: so what's that uh no way we're gonna. We're, no way we're gonna come up with that for you, crisis. We're way too stupid.
0: Yeah, I think that's <laughs> one twentieth
2: of a percent. Um, Dan's got a calculator in front of him right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And oh, it's and tied even up. If I'm
1: you, using my phone as my camera, so I don't even have access <laughs> to a calculator. You're
0: fucked. So it's so it's you're you're one twentieth of a percent. And even if you just just look at like the wealthy Western world and count it as, you know, eight hundred million people. Um, and say those are the only people who are ever going to adopt bitcoin well then okay fine then you're you're half a percent into the adoption curve Th- that that puts you at the in the first wind up of the first pitch of the game
2: right if we're going to put this in terms of the internet what year does that put you as far as internet adoption do you think
0: that's a great question and it would probably still be in the early nineties, that would probably still be like 1993 or something comically early. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's a little unfair because there are, you know, people are aware of Bitcoin. Everyone's aware of Bitcoin and probably 160 million people have in some way touched Bitcoin. But that's the first step of adoption that, that people are calling adoption and true adoption comes from understanding Bitcoin enough to trust it to believe that it should be a part of your savings plan and storing yeah. some Bitcoin on chain in it. And only one twentieth of a percent have have done that. Uh, so anyone that you can orange pill right now gets to be in the first one percent. And you got to remind them that, yeah, it sucks to not It's it sucks to have missed the glory days of 2012, we all did, you know? Um, yep. it's, it hurts to think about how many very rich Bitcoiners there are from those early days who are retired and don't have to do anything and they're sitting pretty and it feels unfair, but you have to re- remember that you are still ahead of 99.99% of the world. Uh, Absolutely, this would be ninety nine point nine five percent of the world, um, and so if you can, if you can get over yourself, you know, forgive yourself, and remind yourself that everyone that is hating Bitcoin on the news and in your social circle, people who are dancing on its grave, they're doing that because they want to see Bitcoin fail because they're bitter that they didn't make a fortune in the early days by by buying someone they first heard about it in 2012 and they didn't do anything about it. Because that's what yeah. happened to everybody. And if you can get over that and recognize that those people who are hating on it are just bitter about it and they don't understand it yet because only a tiny portion of the world has even considered its merits, then you can be one of the first percent to say, oh, actually, there's something here. and. Wow, there's, I'm on a frontier, I'm a pioneer here and there's nobody around and I get to stake a claim when there's miles and miles of open land. Mm. It's a beautiful time and right now is the time to be paying attention to it because of where we are, because of how Bitcoin has crashed again. And we're down at 20,000, below 20,000 and you know it, it's, a, it's a layup I think. In my opinion, it's going to be a layup to 5x in the next three years. What else in your portfolio is going to do that? Nothing.
2: Absolutely not. I mean, not easily, that's for sure. I think the uh, the thing Bitcoin's missing, if I'm reading this correctly, is that there is not pornography on Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. If there was, yeah. this uh, adoption curve would go... <laughs> Absolutely parabolic, yeah. just like the internet did in the mid '90s when I started realizing that pornography was on the internet, <laughs> yeah. and uh, that was all—that's uh, all it took, and yeah. for the rest it, of the world to catch up.
1: That killed Josh's career. That's why he's a fireman. <laughs> if
2: only people could could just barely.
1: Uh, you know
0: what's what's the uh, next best thing to pornography? It's it's uh, getting richer over time. So exactly. uh, You nailed it for sure. So all you got to do is just put it in that that context and think about what is being presented in front of you. This opportunity, this once in a lifetime opportunity to be a part of something before the rest of the world figures out that is valuable.
1: I think you said this when you were on before. Maybe this isn't one of your pieces, but it's like you you talk about the western frontier and basically right now you have the ability to squat on some insanely fertile acreage yeah but you're envious of the other guy that's in the most fertile valley on planet earth right yeah what incites the fomo in someone that understands bitcoin is you understand how many people are you know months to years behind coming to the frontier yeah. that's why like when i think about this last cycle I I did a shit ton of buying all the way up, okay? And I'm way down on those purchases. But I have no regrets about where my headspace was because when you grasp the magnitude of both the scarcity, the escalating scarcity, but then how insanely useful this protocol is going to be for humanity because you need both. Just to bark about scarcity without use case means nothing. When you when when you the confluence of those two things meet and then you realize how early we are, both in terms of capital flowing in and user adoption. You come to the recognition that there are massive risks of sitting on the sidelines. And mm-hmm. at some point, if this thesis plays out the way I expect, this thing is, is going to move in a way that is going to escape you. This is where I think we're passionate is as dudes that work jobs with a, a fairly specific and capped salary. This thing could kind of it has the potential to escape to the point where it's hard to acquire enough Bitcoin to meaningfully change your life condition. It's always going to be useful as savings technology, but we're still in that date and time where acquiring a meaningful chunk of this could really change the entire trajectory of your optionality and freedom in life. And at some point, it is going to leave orbit for whatever earning channel you're in. And when you when you kind of get the mechanics of how early we are, you realize how quickly it could move the other direction. It doesn't feel that way when it's banding around 20 grand for a few months. But a couple of the right stacks of capital move in, give this thing a couple of years, it could be kind of astonishing where it ends up.
0: Yeah. And and you don't even need to bank on, on new capital coming in, which is one of the most mind-bending parts about it is all you need to know is that there is a having in the code coming in 18 months. And so even if even if we flatline right here in terms of adoption, in terms of daily demand from people like us who want to accumulate bitcoin, we just we just stay right here for 18 months. Bitcoin's so boring. Nothing's happening. Yep. Flatlined. Having comes along. Suddenly that supply shock goes into motion and you precipitate the psychology of a speculative bubble. And that speculative bubble, like a tree ring, expands Bitcoin to to its next layer of growth. And eventually that speculative bubble overshoots. It it gets too hot and it will crash. And you'll have a a bear market on the backside, that, that winter that hardens that tree ring. Yeah. And... That's how Bitcoin grows. And in that process, the, the, the having is not undone. So, you know, winter comes and there's still half as much Bitcoin being made every day. Um, and you've also attracted a new sub- slice of adopters because Bitcoin is doing its thing again. And so you have to learn about it. Some people will say, OK, I kicked myself last time for not paying attention. This time I'm gonna learn about Bitcoin. And they start to dig in just a little bit, and something clicks in their head, or maybe they just feel FOMO because their their buddy is jumping in and they want to get in too. And like it or not, they discover that Bitcoin has merit. So, you know, winter comes on the backside of that speculative bubble, and now there's more people who believe in Bitcoin. There's still half as much Bitcoin being made. But now there's even more people who believe in Bitcoin the way that we believe in Bitcoin and are trying to accumulate during that winter time, and that just keeps happening for the next hundred years.
2: Yeah, that's one one thing that one uh, statistic that I've noticed recently is that all these prices. I mean, this is an obvious statement, but they're all made on the margin. Mm-hmm. At this point in this bear market, there are 14 million coins in Bitcoin that haven't moved in years, highest so, ever. Mean, exactly like we're looking at the highest amount of just stubborn adopters that are not selling their bitcoin that are sitting and you know hodling these things and i'm not sure if it was stanley drunkenmiller or if it was uh was it stanley drunkenmiller that said that was what he noticed about bitcoin in in specifically is that when this drawdown happened in 2017 there were like an extremely small amount of people that actually sold and just capitulated
0: he said 86 percent
2: held it Exactly. So, like, that is a statement in and of itself. Like, this four million people, the, these four million people that own Bitcoin and you know are stubborn assholes about it, these early adopters truly understand what they own and they aren't giving an inch. And the rest of the world is going to have to fight over those other four million coins or five
1: million yeah. coins, or whatever's left there. Hodling's pretty simple. Okay, the three of us have been doing it for a while, and here's here's why it's pretty simple. I'll get bearish on Bitcoin when you show me something else that's even remotely close to solving this problem, which, by the way, is quite possibly the biggest problem that confronts humanity in the 21st century. There's nothing else that's even close, that's even in the ballpark of solving this problem. And that that solidifies more each passing year. I, my conviction on that grows. I'm not here to comment on Ethereum's short-term price action, but it moving to proof of stake is another nail in the coffin for me of like, okay, now this really is the only thing on the frontier solving this problem. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's why it's easy to sit around and keep accumulating this stuff. We have our ears and eyes open, but nothing else is coming along. I, let's segue that into you talking a little bit about your journey away from alts, your perception of ETH right now and all this other stuff. And then uh, has your maximalism hardened? Uh, give mm-hmm. us an update there.
0: Yeah. uh, My maximalism has has, I I suppose, cooled off from fiery passion to uh, to a more um, steady, like, you know, uh, acceptance that that people are going to go through pain before they figure out that Bitcoin is the only the only digital asset that has true scarcity. Um, And I say that because the the cardinal sin with any altcoin, and that includes Ethereum, is that Bitcoin is the invention of digital scarcity. And by definition, that can only happen once because you've created a system that has digital scarcity. But in the digital space, you can always copy that system and create a, a clone of it. And that's what an altcoin is. It is a copy of digital scarcity. And what's the marginal cost of producing a copy of digital scarcity? It's nothing. So there's infinite inflation potential of creating additional copies of digital scarcity, and so therefore they have no scarcity. Um, so that's like that's the the first mistake of believing in the value proposition of any altcoin is that they cannot. Deliver on on true scarcity, and then you layer in the the reality that the real innovation is proof of work, um, and that connecting connecting this digital asset to a real physical world cost is instrumental in creating real value, um, and and the economics of that, and. By definition, no proof-of-stake coin has that. And any proof-of-work coin that wants to compete with Bitcoin cannot gain the uh, security necessary to compete with Bitcoin because Bitcoin has that massive uh, computational hardware advantage. So every way you you look at it, uh, there's just no path forward for altcoins. The only path forward for altcoins is to dupe newbies into thinking... That they are going to get rich, and so yeah. that's the playbook, and it has been the playbook ever since Litecoin. That's that's what they do, and they do it well. And I fell for it when I first came into this market.
1: We did too. Yeah, we all did. We they all
0: find did. they have found really clever narratives that appeal to us um, as people who lived through the internet revolution, and and have you know our culture is sort of imbued with an appreciation for venture capital. And that's how people like to invest. They like to think of themselves as, as betting on, on long shots that are gonna go somewhere, you know, have a real bright future, and they're gonna see a great return. And altcoins feed into that narrative. And they do it well, and it's all marketing. And that's another reason why you can't, you can't trust an altcoin because as soon as there's a marketing budget which is necessary to compete with incumbents while that marketing budget is controlled by some group of people which means it's centralized. Yeah. So you've thrown out another one of the value propositions, one of the necessary components of of a digital asset worth owning right there. So yeah, I mean how how has how has my mood on altcoins shifted over time? It's 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 uh it's a sadness that um, these and and I, I hesitate to say scammers because I think there's a lot of people who are genuinely um, building things they think are valuable uh, or or solve some problem that they believe is worth solving, but it all is a, is a house of cards built on quicksand and and fundamentally cannot store value for more than. Than one cycle against Bitcoin. And so there's, you know, I have a sadness about how effective the narratives of altcoins are. And I'm, you know, we're all gonna watch our friends make the mistakes. And we can try and we can save some of them, but a lot most of them are gonna have to go through the way of pain before they realized that they realized that they were duped and they the only thing they can trust is math that is controlled by nobody and that's bitcoin.
2: Yeah, when I think of the altcoin situation in general, I I'm sure you guys have both seen Walt, Wolf of Wall Street. You know the the scene when he goes into that shitty little brokerage and he's like, "What are you guys doing here? What is this?" He's like, yeah. "We're selling penny stocks." Yeah. And yeah, the guys who are running Aerodyne Technologies making these new next generation, you know, radar detectors, they're not scammers, but they're not going anywhere. It's a total fugazi. It's a total, you know, it's just a bullshit little mom and pop company run by a couple of people that are not going to make it. That's 99% of this altcoin situation. It's all penny stocks. It's just gambling. So as long as you understand that and you want to play that game, sure, go ahead. But understand that this is this is just penny stocks. It's just throwing money into a fountain.
1: It's also worth defining like what we're deeming as success. Because... Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's Joe Carlos, that first, int- he said Bitcoin money maximalism. When it comes to which protocol is going to accrue and transfer value reliably and long-term, mm-hmm. Bitcoin is my answer. Now, if you're interested in tokenizing securities tomorrow, um, yeah, you may be interested in a different, different uh, protocol. If you're interested in moving around stable coins, which... You know, we had Mauricio Di Bartolomeo on, like, it's hard to argue with people in the third world who are using these things. There is, I've kind of described it as like scaffolding. Like, I think eventually Bitcoin will solve a lot of these problems of those that are cut off from banking. But in the meantime, there's kind of this scaffolding built around it to meet some of these intermediate needs, which I think stable coins are, are clearly meeting. But the thing is, you have to ask, what is the protocol doing underneath it? It's more of a utility token. There's going to be vicious competition. Those things are going to come and go. Um, Obviously, there's tremendous centralization concerns. To call most of this stuff decentralized is ridiculous. So I think when when you're having this conversation with someone, it's maybe a little bit naive to say that everything else in the space is, like you said, a scam or completely useless because they would say, oh, there's tons of Venezuelans and Brazilians and Argentinians using stable coins on Ethereum. What are you talking about? And that's where I think it's helpful to come back to in terms of where to store your hard-earned capital in something that has the mechanics to accrue value over time. There's one protocol that stands out. Yeah.
0: I I think Corey Clipston um, put out the little anecdote that over the last four years, only three out of 19,000 cryptocurrencies have had a higher high versus Bitcoin, uh, which is to say, you can you can throw darts and you can outperform Bitcoin um, on a four-plus year timeline. Though you're going to have to be really good at darts to do <laughs> better than Bitcoin, um, and so that that's what it comes back to, like risk-adjusted. There's nothing, there's, n- there's no asset on the planet that comes close to Bitcoin. And, and a big part of that is because the world thinks that Bitcoin is risky. Right. When they're, they're misattributing volatility, uh, they're miscategorizing volatility as risk. Um, I think Pierre Richard recently said that it's, it's not Bitcoin that's volatile, it's humans that are volatile in how they interact with Bitcoin. Um, because we come in, we we get FOMO and we pile in in a speculative bubble and we're bad at it. And then nobody's interested now at the bottom. And that's how you know it's a bottom. So human beings are the volatile thing. And I think Pierre's dead right to say that. Um, and so, you know, what's what's really the risk of Bitcoin? Its sharp ratio is better than anything else out there. But I think that's like, that doesn't even fairly characterize True risk here because you have to account for the programmatic reduction of sub- supply issuance, which nothing else on the planet has. And then you have to ask the question of uh, how likely is that to occur? A hundred percent. There's nothing that can stop that. I mean, I guess I guess if you destroy the world, <laughs> if you turn off the internet and all satellites and radios indefinitely, yeah, you you could you could prevent the next halving from happening. But otherwise, it's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, we we mischaracterize the risk inherent to Bitcoin. It's actually one of the less risky assets out there in this current climate in particular. Um, and it ha- also happens to have more upside um, than anything else because it's, what is it now? <laughs> Gosh, it's a $400 billion asset in a $900 trillion sea of of value in the world, um, and that 's why you know mean gold is a, a ten to thirteen trillion dollar asset, uh, and Bitcoin is a better gold in in every way, especially the supply issuance, which you know gold has two percent more mined every year, and Bitcoin uh, is what one point eight percent right now and in eighteen months drops to zero point nine percent and then keeps doing that every four years um, and and it's also dematerialized, which means you can transmit it instantaneously across the world. Uh, it's a better it's a better asset than gold. So a digital gold should end up being, you know, more than than gold. So what's that mean? Is it two x gold? Is, is it two x gold would put it at a um, million dollars per Bitcoin? Maybe I I think that's kind of the that's the conservative case in my book. And then when you look at all the other assets out there you know, all this, all the many hundreds of trillions sitting in bonds, 230 or 50 trillion in an inferior asset, a, a good chunk of that, if not the majority of that, will over the next few decades, admittedly, migrate to this better risk return asset because that's what people holding bonds want. They want a reliable low risk return and you can get that with Bitcoin and people just don't know it right now. So yeah. what's the upper bound? Is it 200 trillion for Bitcoin, which would be 10 million per coin? It's somewhere in that range. A million to 10 million per Bitcoin. In my book, I, you know every time I think about the numbers, that's what I come out to.
1: Face melting territory. What's yeah. it going to take to change the mind of big institutional money? When do you when do you really see the, the tipping point happening with that cohort?
0: Yeah, it, I, I, the more I think about it, the more I think it, it just follows the adoption curve, the, the adoption bell curve. And inherent in that is that there's not really a moment that you can point at. There's a smooth curve. So, you know, the the slice of new adopters gets bigger as you move towards the center of that bell curve. Um, Every four years, you're, you're attracting a larger cohort of new adopters because that's, you know, as it's socially proofed and suddenly it starts to make more sense, you accelerate the adoption. But I don't think there's like, I don't think there's a moment where all of a sudden it clicks for everybody. You know, I don't think there's a four year period where that happens. I think it's I think it's tree rings and it's just a relentless absorption of the next slice of the adoption curve um, over the next couple decades, probably.
2: Yeah. Jesse, what are your yuppie friends saying right now? I'm really curious as to what their opinion is on Bitcoin. Just to wrap this up, this is the this is like the clinching question that we have to know. (laughs) What are the yuppies saying? What are they investing in? And what is their outlook over the next five to 10 years as far as you, you've you surmised from them? Yeah,
0: uh, I, so I, I told you guys before um, that I happened to see Dan uh, from my yuppie article. Uh, the guy that I, I Does he know it. he's and in the he, article by the way? No, he does, <laughs> does he not know. That know. <laughs> That's, he doesn't know he's the
2: characterized yuppie here?
0: Yeah, and his, and his name is not Dan. It's a, It's a different three letter First name. Um, Jim. It's for sure Jim. <laughs> yeah. um, but I saw him at a, at a wedding um, and I, I asked him, um, which the exact phrasing of what I used in the article of uh, what do you think the percent probability is that Bitcoin goes to a million dollars? And he said one percent.
1: And, and last it, time it was like 0. 0.00001, right? It was
0: in the article, it was 0.001%. And I said, Oh, because I I asked you this a few years ago and you said 0.001%. And he was like, No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Yes, you did. Because I went home and I wrote an article about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, uh, you know, I think that's telling right there. I think that. He's not yet a buyer. I was—I happened to see him um, the day that we were crashing from like twenty-eight down to like twenty-two or whatever it was in June, and and I was like, "Would you buy a Bitcoin just to just to hedge against the risk that I'm right if it was if it was twenty-five thousand dollars for a Bitcoin, a screaming steal versus where you know you know everyone was anchored to the sixty thousand range." Um, And he was like, I I think about it. And I was like, guess what? You can do that right now. And then he was like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it.
1: Yeah. We talk about these four eyes, you know, at first, for most people, it's idiotic. Then it moves to interesting. Then it becomes important. And then eventually it's imperative. And it seems like Dan's gone from saying 0.001 is more in the idiotic camp. 1% sounds like he's entered more of the interesting camp. He's, he's moving up our our four eyes here.:
0: I think that's a very fair
1: characterization.
0: Uh, and I wonder when he will budge on that. I think it unfortunately he has dug his heels in and it's almost part of his identity now to to you know have this um, cynicism about Bitcoin. Uh, but you know if we're right, then at some point everyone comes to Bitcoin. You know at, at i don't like the phrase at the price they deserve because i think that's unfair um but everyone's going to come to bitcoin when they are willing to admit that they were wrong about bitcoin uh and we'll see when that is for dan
1: people just forget how much their tone changes yeah right he had no memory everybody does it, right? Everybody everybody does it. I, I've told the story on here is last summer, I was hanging out with one of my buddies in TradFi. We were hanging out in similar to your interaction with Dan. We were hanging out in the same place we were like three years earlier when he literally laughed in my face that mm-hmm. I was buying Bitcoin. And now he's like, kind of got a corner on it, like filling me in on it. You know, yeah. it's an interesting, very speculative asset, but it's something I'm paying more attention to. Yeah. And I'm like, "Bro, you remember this conversation 3 years ago when you laughed in my face and I mean, remembers we had a conversation about it, but cannot remember his tone on it." Yeah. All of our tones are changing, and when you're in this space long enough, it's enlightening to kind of trend normie perception of this asset.
0: Yeah. I think I think that we we forget that like as humans one of the like primary drives we have is like ego ego preservation, right? And and Being we right. have malleable memories, and we can, you know, as we're faced uh, with changing information, we can update our um, understanding or or outlook on something, and simultaneously uh, retroactively update our. Our prior beliefs, um, you know, our our view of ourself in the past about how we felt about this thing back then, and that's true of everything, for and, sure, and definitely happening with Bitcoin.
1: One thing I've said to a couple people, Jesse, is because when you intro this to somebody and they work with a financial advisor, let's say, um, a lot of people that work with advisors to begin with, it's a great thing; it can be a good fit for a lot of people, but they've just deferred the financial investment part of their life external. Yeah. My parents included. So what I've told to some people before, I started doing this a while ago, is I say, trend their outlook on Bitcoin. Mark where, take a note of where they are today, how they're describing it. And then as as the months and years go on, let's trend what their perception is, what their language is towards it. It's moved Mm -hmm. dramatically. I mean, from don't touch this with a 60 foot pole to a lot of them entertaining it. And it's that trajectory is only going to continue. Totally agree.
0: Yeah, it is pretty outrageous that, you know, my my parents take all of their investment advice from their wealth manager. uh, And I've tried to move the needle on their perception of Bitcoin. Uh, You know, they've they've they have some outside of their wealth management relationship. But that guy thinks that I'm an idiot, you know, uh, and and like doesn't want to talk to me about Bitcoin at all, um, and you know that's what that's a dime a dozen story out here. You know, there's so many wealth managers in particular who are the gatekeepers of portfolio allocation, and they're they're incentivized to be conservative and to do what is proven, and and so. That's a big yeah. uh, it's a big pool of capital that has yet to make its
2: way a big problem for that conservatism quote unquote is like that they're only trending the last thirty years you know exactly they're, they're the guys telling you to go in a 60 40 portfolio everything's fine yep. like, this is normal yeah it's gonna be yeah. re- really ugly for a lot of people in the near term probably when this thing turns around again
1: well you know, I mean but- it's happening before our eyes I mean a lot of these dudes are sitting around scratching their head, at yields skyrocketing and the stock market selling off at the same time. You're starting to see some of this stuff, some of these heuristics and shortcuts and strategies kind of unwind in front of our face. And I think it's going to become more confounding to Mm -hmm. manage other people's money this next decade. Uh, It's just a complicated landscape with a ton of different potential outcomes. Yeah. There's no way I'd want to do it. That's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to manage anyone's money, man. No freaking way.
0: I think Josh is right that like the, the the guiding principle for all of those folks is to do what has worked over the last thirty years of of your data sample, right? And that entire sample is predicated on an environment of of falling interest rates, you know, trending down interest rates, which yep. which you know jacks up the valuations of every asset. Uh, particularly if you're, you know, focused on cash flows and discounted cash flows into the future. And you have a a reduced discount uh, variable in your equation. And yeah, so what has worked over the last 30 years, 40 years, really since 1981, when interest rates were 15%, uh, is not going to work over the next 10 years. Um, and so the people who are basing their strategies on what worked over the last 30 years will likely underperform, and that's probably going to be the 60, 40 portfolios that will likely underperform because the environment has changed and the strategy
2: hasn't. Absolutely. We're going to wrap this up real soon, but I got to tell you this little tidbit. So I, I'm on the uh, pension board for our fire department. They have a 2% target for inflation. Because they've smoothed it over the last thirty years. Wow! Like this is hilarious and clownish to look at this paperwork from these actuaries and be like, "You guys are serious." Like this two percent yeah. is what we're gonna, you know, hang wow. our hat on for the next ten to 20, 30 years here.
0: So you're gonna you're gonna take a four percent yield in Treasuries all day, every day.
2: For sure. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. At least you know what I, I got to give them some credit though. At least we're not gonna go doubling down and tripling down like the UK did. And blow Mm -hmm. our pension up. Like if we're gonna buy treasuries, we're gonna be just some fucking clowns that buy treasuries and we're not
1: gonna lever them up. At least that. I think what's uh what's gonna be so confounding about the climate moving forward is is it's gonna be really easy to get caught momentarily off sides. We just spent some time talking with Greg Foss and Joe Carlosari about this. Like, yeah, you may look at where yields are right now and get a little bullish on long duration Mm -hmm. treasuries if you're looking for capital gains in the next couple of years. And you may hear of some buddies or a bond trader who's killing it doing that. But when you zoom out and you look at the forest instead of the trees, the trend that we discussed earlier about what's going to happen to the underlying currency, the likelihood that yields are going to go back to the lower bound and probably negative. I mean, what did we have? 19 trillion in negative yielding debt? I'm sure that's not the all time high. I'm sure at some point we're going back down that direction. And so yeah, I think that's where our angle is here on this show is like we're trying to give people advice who are going to passively invest over a full career, who don't have the interest or desire to dig into all this, you know, esoteric stuff. And even with the 10 year four percent or above, we're like the thesis is intact that uh fixed income's probably in a world of hurt and there's gonna yep. be a widening leak in the pool, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and and to to speak to that concept of like wanting to set up a you know just a, a safe investment strategy, um, you know that that's what that's what we all care about. Like right? like I talked about this last time with you guys, but it bears repeating that all of us want a better future for our family. Right? That that's what. that's what motivates me. Um, Some people are are preoccupied with living in the moment, but I'm focused on building a better future for my family. And here is this asset that is not understood by 99.95% of the world yet that has these incredible properties of increasing scarcity that can reliably deliver uh, value appreciation. And you can set up a savings plan for the digital age via this asset. You can treat it the way it should be treated as a savings technology that allows you to squirrel away with every paycheck a little bit into this asset that has a better, in my opinion, a better risk adjusted outlook than anything on the planet. And you can trust in it that you don't have to touch it. You don't have to manage it. You can just squirrel away with every paycheck. And in doing so, can build a brighter future for your family and like put your kids through college and buy a house and ensure that you can retire in an era where a lot of people who don't do this will not be able to retire. If anyone, you know, everyone out there who cares about making a brighter future for their family and wants to be able to retire. Or you know, pay for their the wedding of their daughter or whatever it is. Be able to you know contribute to your family in the future. Here's your opportunity to learn about this savings technology that nobody else, the vast majority of the world doesn't seem to understand yet. And you get to be you know an early claim staker
1: on the frontier. Well said. Great place to put a pin in it. Croesus, uh, give us. A Handoff to however you want to close this. Where can people find you? What are you going to be doing that people can engage with?
0: Yeah. Uh I'm I'm on Twitter as um C R O E S U S underscore B T C. Um, I also just started a substack and I'm sort of cross posting it with uh LinkedIn to kind of put a shot across the bow for my professional network. Poke some yuppies. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so if you're interested in my writings, I, I'm sort of on like a, every week or two cadence right now, just getting going, um, at, uh, Jesse Myers, that's dot Substack, I guess would be the account. I like um, that. and yeah, I'm really bad at DMs, but, uh, but I, I love engaging with folks on, on Twitter. So you can find me there.
2: Jesse, always a privilege, man. Yeah. This has been a pleasure as always. And, uh, yeah, we hope to meet you in person soon. You guys are fun to talk to.
0: Yeah, I look forward to that. That'll be awesome when we can have a beer in person. Absolutely.
1: Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast.